Please be seated. Good evening to you. Psalm 126 this evening, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles as we turn to Psalm 126. Just wave to them and get their attention and they'll get a Bible into your hands tonight. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you this evening. We remember that the book of Psalms is the Old Testament equivalent of a hymn book. It was the Hebrew uh, hymn book. These are the songs that they sang when they came together to worship the Lord and their various uh, assembling together. And we realized as we began last week in looking at Psalm 120 through Psalm 134 that we're in a very specific section of the book of Psalms, and these are the Psalms known as the Psalms of Ascent or the Songs of Ascent. And these are the songs that the Jewish pilgrims would sing to the Lord as they would begin to approach the city of Jerusalem from all over the world. And three times a year, the Jewish men, and as they were able with their families, they would come during the three great feasts of the Jewish religious calendar, come to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. And so the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And so this was very special for them to come together. They've got their own individual relationship with God, just like we have our own individual relationship with God. They're meeting together in in their synagogue or their gatherings with other Jews in the cities that they're in. And now here's this time of the year where they come and everyone comes together. So this just sea of pilgrims just like them making their way to Jerusalem and all kinds of thoughts come into their mind as they think about the blessings of being a child of God and many of those thoughts were then put to song so that by the Spirit of God so that they would then sing these worship songs to the Lord kind of as they're coming together for church just the privilege, a sense of privilege of being able to worship the Lord as we've even prayed that this God is our God and then as they looked at their fellow brothers and sisters who are uh, suffering all of the same persecution and difficulty and spiritual warfare and trials and challenges of life that come with just being a human being and then the challenges that a child of God faces uniquely in this world and looking and realizing I'm not in this alone. If God is being faithful to them, He'll be faithful to me. And I, I have friends in this, people who understand, people that I can talk to, that we can come together and worship the Lord together. So all this whole dynamic is happening. And this Psalm 126, again, one of the songs of ascent. And this is a song that was written in remembrance of uh, the children of Israel returning from the Babylonian captivity and that part of their history where because of their own sin, their own idolatry, God said, all right, you like idolatry? I'll send you the land of idols. <laughs> you, I'll send you to Babylon until idols come out of your nostrils. And uh, you see how wonderful a life is in a nation that worships uh, all of these false gods and not the worship of the true and the living God. And then you tell me after you experience that whether what you had with me wasn't much better than what you're introducing into your life supposedly secretly and has taken over the country. And, and, they, and when the Jews were in the Babylonian captivity, one of the things that it forever accomplished related to the Jews is they never returned to idolatry ever again in their history. 
in the way that they had before. We know there's idolatry of self-worship. Unbelief can be idolatry. But talking about the kind of idolatry that they were in that was competition with the worship of the true and the living God. And so this psalm was written and it's kind of expressed the heart of the the, uh, Jewish uh, people as they were coming back from Babylon and being reintroduced back into uh, the land of Israel and then most specifically uh, into uh, approaching the capital, approaching Jerusalem once again after the 70 years of captivity. So really, it's a psalm for the backslider. They've come from a long backslide and uh, they learn their lesson and now they're going to reapproach God. Sometimes you can wonder when a person is backslidden, will God ever, uh, will He ever accept me again? Is there a relationship with God that will ever approach the relationship that I once had with God? Uh, what's His heart toward me? And uh, this psalm answers that question. And he speaks of the joy here of these uh, captives coming back to Zion or Jerusalem. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. It was like a dream to them. You can imagine being 70 years away. And, and I, you almost, I don't want to make anybody feel bad, but you almost have to go to Israel and see the beauty of the land. What they threw away. And what they had been missing, not just with God, because they repented of their sin in Babylon and their relationship with God was restored back there, but they realized what we threw away, our entire lifetime could have been spent in the land of Israel. And there's really nothing that compares to the land of Israel, except California, (laughs) in a physical sense. You go to Israel and one of the things that happens to you once you travel from the north to the south to the east to the west and you say, this is like a miniature California. Forests in the north, desert down in the south. It's got a valley that goes right down uh, the eastern side or right down through the nation just like California has a central valley. It has a coast on its west side, the Mediterranean Sea. We have... Uh, the Pacific Ocean. So this beautiful, beautiful place. But then you add all of the spiritual history and heritage there. They come back to the land and they say, we've, and they know they're awake. They know they're not dreaming. But you know, you kind of go into that surreal kind of place and you just feel like, I must be dreaming. I never thought that I would ever see Jerusalem again. And then he said, then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. This return had produced singing and joy. And they hadn't been singing and joy-filled and filled with laughter in a very, very long time. And so they were filled with this joy and laughter. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. And they just began to praise the Lord. Lord. And then he goes on and he prays to the Lord in the midst of this, bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. And that phrase, bring back, it literally means turn around. 
And what the psalmist is asking the Lord to do is that God would help them in turning around the effects of their exile upon the land. While they were in captivity, the people who came in and took the land after them didn't love the land the way that they did because they didn't have the heritage with God. It wasn't a gift from God to them the way that it was to the children of Israel. They couldn't view it the same way that the children of Israel did. And so the land went into... uh, a relative ruin, and, the, and he's requesting that God would help them turn around the effects of that exile and, because the land bore uh, some of the consequences that would take time to, to turn around. These fields that had once been beautiful and had fed a nation and more, now overgrown or non-existent. He said, bring back our captivity, O Lord, Undo the damage of our backslide, in other words, as the streams in the south. Now, in the south of Israel, it's the Negev. It's the Negev Desert. It's a very, very arid part of Israel. And there are these wadis that are there and these great channels that you look at and you drive by and you say, these are channels intended to carry massive amounts of water, but they get maybe rain three times a year down in the Negev. But when it rains, I mean, instantly the water just comes down through these wadis and just floods the whole area. And In fact, sometimes we've gone to Israel uh, one year, and by the time we go the next time, they've reconstructed the whole road down by Masada and in that part of the, the southern because the storms were so great it just washed out the road and they had to relocate the roads in a different way to make them effective. And so here's this great amount of, of water that would come. They'd be filled up during the uh, rainy season. The wadis would literally become streams and rivers. And the psalmist was praying to the Lord that the great multitude of Jews that were still in Babylonian captivity, that this is the first group that's coming back to Israel, that God would cause them to be a great, that there would be a great stream of of God's people returning from Babylon back into the land. And then he declared, Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth in weeping, shall, uh, weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves or his harvest with him. And so their return would involve a lot of hard work, would involve a lot of weeping, but it would be worth it the psalmist knew, and that it would uh, result in an end in joy. And so returning, is one of the things the psalm teaches us is that returning from exile from God or returning from uh, being backslidden with God, it may not be easy dealing with the consequences of that, but it's always worth it. The return isn't always easy for a person to make. God knows that. God's people have known it for thousands of years. And the consequences can be very significant that a person has to work through as a result of of the backslide. But we can bear that, those consequences, take those consequences up with the confidence of knowing that we're right with God once again and that He will bless us. I don't know what price do you put on the fact of knowing I'm right with God again. I can put my head down on the pillow tonight and I know 
that I'm right with God again. Yes, I'm dealing with the consequences of my backslide. Yes, I'm having to develop character to process all of that and to get on the other side of it. But I consider myself to be a rich man, someone might say, by virtue of being at peace with God once again. And so this is the the hope of it. There's a man that I know and I love and I respect who went through a couple of very, very significant backslides in his Christian life. And the first time he backslid and he came back to the Lord and it was all so easy, it was so effortless for him. And everything was returned, the intimacy of relationship, the lifeness within the Word of God, all of these things came back almost instantly, like just like where he left them. And then some years later, he headed into a very uh, significant backslide once again. And as I was talking with him one time, he said, this time it wasn't so easy. He said, it didn't come back as fast. I didn't feel a lot. I knew what was right. I knew what I needed to do, but I didn't feel all of that. All of that came after a while. And he said, I think the Lord was just teaching me not to take this for granted, that what I have with God will always be there and that I can just throw it away and come back to it any time that I want. And I'll tell you, he learned the lesson. He walks strong with the Lord today. And so it's good for us to remember that God doesn't put us through all... Doesn't, God doesn't go through all of the work that He goes through to bring us back from a backslidden uh, condition if He didn't intend to bless us when we do that. The Bible says that where sin abounds... Grace abounds much more. Literally, grace hyperabounds. You can have, it's like you're on the uh, Pacific Ocean on the shore somewhere and you're building a sandcastle. Let's make it a nice place. All right? It's my illustration. You're at Carmel, 17 mile drive, just steps from your home. Now I'm getting bitter. But you build on that shore, you build this sandcastle there, and you think, oh my, there's the sandcastle of my sin. Could anything ever wipe it out? Could anything, could ever God ever take it completely away and make it a distant memory for me and so overwhelm it with His grace? God sends in a tidal wave, not only takes out the sandcastle, but the beach in all of California. Nevada becomes beachfront tr- property where sin abounds. Grace hyperabounds. And it doesn't mean that we become lax concerning sin or backsliding. But God knows, and He loves the backslider, and He loves to restore the backslider. And God wants the backslider to always be confident that that's His heart toward us and that we can spend the rest of our lives giving Him praise, if that's a part of our history, for how good He has been to us to restore that former life to us even though sometimes it requires a fair amount of work uh, in order to do so as he teaches us lessons we might not otherwise learn. Psalm 127, beautiful psalm that speaks of God as the builder of uh, a house or the builder of a home or of a family. He said, unless the Lord builds the house, 
They labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early. I knew that was in the Bible somewhere. Every musician in the room is underlining that. I knew it is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. And so Psalm 127, the psalm is driving home really one single great point, and that is nothing in life can be what it is intended to be apart from God, that apart from His wisdom and His perspective and His power and His strength and His involvement, even the blessings of life are rendered empty and and vain and meaningless by comparison. And he illustrates this great point from four different areas in life. And he does it from the four areas of life that most of our life is uh, consumed with, invested in. Number one, the building of a house, that is the establishing of a home in verse 1. And then later in verse 1, the guarding of a city. That's talking about our personal safety and our personal security in life, trying to establish that in life. And then number 3 in verse 2, he speaks of our occupation. That is, what do we rise up uh, either early in the morning or we stay up late for, whether you've got the early morning shift or you've got the graveyard shift, talking about our occupation And then he talks very significantly in verses 3 through 5 about the raising of children. None of these things can be what they are intended to be apart from God's involvement in each of those areas and and to become the blessing that he wants them to be. Now, it's interesting to me that the psalmist spends the bulk of his time uh, focusing on the raising of children. And I think there's a reason for that. I think the reason is that because the raising of godly children, not the raising of children, the raising of godly children is probably the greatest challenge that any person will ever face in their life. And I certainly believe it's the greatest responsibility that a human being will ever have to take a human life and to fashion it and to prepare it for adult life in this world to prepare that child for eternity. It's the greatest responsibility we'll ever face, and it's the hardest thing a person will ever do if we choose to do it uh, properly. But we don't do it alone. And the psalmist tells us in this psalm, reminds us that no child can ever be what they're intended to be apart from God. It's a funny thing. We talk a little bit about backsliding and how often it is that We'll see someone who's been raised in the church all kinds of years. What has been invested in their life through their parents, godly parents, their heritage, what they know from the Word of God. I mean, some of the things that so many people would give their right arm to know and have that kind of a heritage and those kind of parents and that kind of family. And they just throw it away as if it means nothing for a time in their life. And 
the course of kind of coming to their senses. And um, uh, and so often what happens with that person is we won't see them for years and years and years, and then one day I'll see them in church. And guess what? They have a baby in their arms. And they hit exactly what the psalmist is saying here. They realize, I've got a baby. I need to raise this baby. I'm going to fashion an eternal human being. I better get back to church. I better get back to the Lord and introduce into my child's life what was so important to me as a part of my life. And there's that recognition that the child can never be what they're intended to be apart from God. And I want us to notice just three things from this psalm concerning children. I might spend just a little time on this psalm because it just works so contrary to the way our culture is operating today related to children and related to family. I want us to notice three things in this psalm concerning children. Number one, how God views children. And then number two, their potential, the blessing that they're intended to be to a family. And then number three, what's required of parents in order for children to reach uh, their kind of God-intended potential in uh, for children and causing their children to reach that potential. And we notice in verse 3 that children are a reward from the Lord. They are, he tells us, they're, they're a heritage from the Lord. So they're a reward. In some translations it says reward. So when the Lord gives somebody a child, he considers the fact that he's giving us a good thing. And you notice uh, further that the children are referred to as a heritage from the Lord. Uh, and a heritage means an inheritance. And an inheritance is basically a transference of wealth where you have that which once belonged to somebody else and now it's willingly and graciously entrusted to you. And so when God entrusts us and blesses us with children, he's entrusting something very, very valuable to us. Probably the most valuable thing he'll entrust to us next to the gospel in, in our whole lives. And I think that sometimes we need to be reminded of the fact that children are a blessing from the Lord. And I think attitude toward children by adults in the United States of America has uh, changed dramatically in uh, my lifetime. We won't even get into abortion as a reflection on that. That's its own, that's its own off-the-graph thing in terms of an attitude toward the value of children, the fact that children are a gift from God. But so often the world, our thinking concerning children is fashioned by the world, and we have to be careful that it doesn't get fashioned by the world because the world is just growing increasingly more self-centered and more materialistic all around us. I read an article some time ago, maybe you've even been following the kind of negative birth rates in much of the Western world where they're saying uh, we are long past and in Europe, uh, in the United States, we're only holding our population through immigration and most of that illegal. 
And, but much of the world is in the same place. The birth rates have gone down to such a level that you have entire groups of people that will potentially not be able to inhabit the country that is associated with their name. And that that's potentially right around the corner without increased birth rates going on. The article went on to speak about the driving uh, force behind that is the increased materialism of the Western world and the self-focus of the Western world. And so people view uh, materialistic uh, blessings, uh, having this, having that, this thing materially as more important than having children, and so they don't have children or they limit the number of their children uh, in order to have these particular things. Or they don't want children at all together because they don't want the child to, uh, in, you know, uh, be a trouble in their life. I'm not saying for you to go home and start having children tonight, by the way. That's something that goes on between you and the Lord. But we see that thing that goes on uh, with the culture that's fighting against this whole idea. Children are lo- looked at as a nuisance. They're a hindrance to my self-fulfillment. They're, they're going to keep me from being able to get the house that I want or the toys that I want, this kind of thing, because children are very, very uh, expensive. And so increasingly, I don't say totally, but increasingly careers and, and materialism and material wealth is viewed as more desirable and more fulfilling than having children. And so the decline isn't surprising at all, and it isn't surprising because raising children is usually very hard work. Say, my my first child was effortless. I don't know what you're talking about, that it was hard work. Then you had your second one, or vice versa. You had the first one, and then it was a miracle that you even had another child. I can't have another one of those. I might get twins. It'd be three of them. (laughs) So having children, it really is hard work. It's, again, the hardest thing we'll ever do to raise them properly. They're very expensive, and they also require great, great self-sacrifice. And so it's not surprising that the world as it becomes more materialistic, more self-focused, that its view of children as a nuisance or something to be avoided, that that kind of thing is increasing. And so, but I, I do want to make clear that I'm not saying that all those that choose not to have children are doing so because they're selfish and materialistic. There's, the, the picture is a lot bigger than that. I think that there's other reasons behind the attitude, kind of a negative attitude increasingly toward children and one of the things I think is that because fewer and fewer children are being raised in the things of the Lord, being raised by God's standard as God intends, the quality of children is going down, as it always must within a country or within sections of the world. And so the problems with children become greater and greater and greater, the fewer and fewer and fewer that are raised in the way that God intends them to be raised. And so when people start to look around and they see so many messed up kids and they see so few kids that are on the straight and narrow and adjusted and respectful and doing good, they look and they say, listen, I'd rather play the lottery. I'm not going to gamble on that. And they don't realize that it has everything to do with how the child is raised. 
and not with they just come out, they raise themselves, and then they become whatever they become. And so when people see how many messed up kids there are and then how many messed up young adults they become, they say, I don't want anything uh, to do with it. I think another reason is people look at the uncertainty of the world and say, why in the world would I bring children into this world? That was my attitude. And I married Karen, and she wanted children. Guess who won? She won. We had two. But that was a full quiver for me. I just looked at the world and said, why in the world would I bring children into this mess? Who knows what is coming in the future? And I think many of us understand it. I'll tell you, we can be thankful that the parents of Moses didn't take my view. Moses was born into a lot of trouble. We can be thankful that the parents of Elijah and Elisha and Joshua and Daniel and David and Isaiah and Peter and Paul didn't make their decision solely on the basis of that. And I think when you look at history, for every student of history, you realize how often the Lord answered the insanity and the wickedness of the world with a child. And sometimes that child comes from the most unexpected quarter in the world. And, of course, the Lord Jesus being chief among them. So children, God views children as a blessing. That's his attitude toward children, and it's good for us to be reminded of that. And then he speaks in verses 4 and 5 of their potential, the blessing that they bring to a family. And he speaks of the fact in verse 5 that they have the potential to bring great blessing and joy to their parents and to a family. Happy is the man who has a quiver full of them. You say, I don't know how happy they would be. You tell me. Well, you've got to stop and think sometimes. What price tag do you put on a child's first words? Especially when it's dada. Their first teeth, tooth, their first step that they take when they sit on your lap, when they pull on your face in all directions. That's one of the things about being great as a parent. You become like Gumby. Your face face goes all kinds of directions, and they love it. Your face is expandable. Teach them to ride a bike, and on and on it goes, until they then reach adult life, and then they get to experience those same things with their children. I was listening this week to B.J. Thomas. When I was a new Christian, I listened to a lot of his gospel music. It was very important for me at that time in my Christian life. And um, he has a song on one of his Christian albums that was Happy Man. And I was uh, thinking about this a little bit related to the psalm this week where he's talking about a man who had never been to Paris, never had been to the great cities of the world and all. And there's something like... In, in the lyrics of the song, but I've heard children laughing as only children can. And then he talks about God making him a happy man. Sometimes we think the biggest things are clear on the other side of the world, and there's a lot of beauty and there's a lot of life to be found there, but the greatest blessings in life are found in the ordinary life. They're right under our nose if we notice them. And so much of them are right there related to our children and the blessing that they can be.
He tells us in verse 5, at the end of verse 5, that children are intended to be a source of security or support to their parents in their old age. So in uh, a parent's old age, they knew that if their child was raised a certain way, that they wouldn't be abandoned, but they'd be cared for by their children. And when you have children that are well-raised and raised in the thing of the Lord, and not all children that are raised in the Lord continue in it, but when they're raised in the things of the Lord and then they continue in it, you've got the greatest security in life, more secure than stocks or bonds or Social Security or anything else, because you know that child, because of their relationship with the Lord, is going to take care of you, whatever it needs to be taken care of in old age. Imagine... How much more diligent parents would be today in the raising of their children if they knew that they would have to depend upon them for food and shelter in their old age instead of Social Security. It's funny, you look at the consequences. I'm not going to get into a rant related to Social Security because I'm just about eligible for it. I'm only kidding. I don't have a this way or that way. But you look at so often where government moves in and it moves money around. It creates bubbles, not just financial bubbles. It creates spiritual bubbles. It creates a lot of bubbles. And I think something very, very healthy has been removed from parents and finding a security in old age that is separated from being responsible for how I raise my children because I will be dependent upon children in my old age and how they view me and how they view people and how they look to take care of people and what kind of character they've been raised with. And parents don't even have to think about that because as soon as the kid hits 18 years old in this culture, we give them luggage as a graduation gift. They can move on. And it's like, I'm taken care of financially. Now just phone me whenever the news is good. But it was a good thing in that old culture to realize I need to invest in my children because I'm investing in my old age. He tells us in verse 4 that they're intended to be a source of safety and protection for their parents in old age. They're to be like arrows in the hand of a warrior. And so this kind of a child is they protect their parents in old age and as effectively as arrows protect a warrior in battle. And then he tells us in verse 5, the end of that, that they're intended to bring honor to a family. And as the enemies of the family would rise up and bring accusation against this godly family, false accusations against them, persecute them, that the character of the children that came out of their home would silence any attack that would be made upon them. What kind of home can produce that kind of child? What kind of parent can produce that kind of child? They bring honor to the family. When they, and it also speaks of children being able to protect an elderly parent from being taken advantage of by his enemies in the old age. How much more to raise a child in the ways of the Lord so that the child doesn't take advantage of you before the enemies can take advantage of you. That happens all of the time too. Ripped off by your own kids. In order for parents, or in order for children to be a, the blessing that God intends them to be to a family, it requires three things of parents. 
And number one in verse three, there has to be a recognition that children belong to God first and foremost and to us secondarily. They are given to us as a stewardship. A steward is someone who handles somebody else's property. That's what a steward is. And when God gives us children, he is entrusting his property to us. They are our children. They are our flesh and blood. But supremely, they belong to him first and foremost. And that's one of the acknowledgments we make when we do a baby dedication here in the church. The acknowledgment this child has come into this family is a gift from the Lord. And so there is this recognition the child belongs to God first and foremost. I am a steward. Paul wrote concerning stewards. He said it's required of a steward to be faithful. It isn't required of a steward to be smart, to be popular, to be clever, to be entertaining. All a steward has to be to be a good steward is to be faithful, just to know what his master requires him to do with the property that's been entrusted to him and then to do that. And that's the one of the beautiful things about being a Christian parent and realizing the child has been given to me as a stewardship. I don't have to be smart. I don't have to be dumb. I don't have to be clever. I don't have to be rich. I don't have to be poor. I don't have to be any of these things. All I need to do to raise children the way that God wants children to be raised is just to be a steward, just to be faithful, to learn in his word how does he want a child to be raised and then be faithful to do that. And that takes a huge load off of me as a parent and off of us to just be faithful to what God has called us to do and to be as a steward. And then he'll add everything else uh, to our efforts. And it really, really is important, I think, in terms of uh, pressure that's placed upon parents today. They talk about bullying today, so much bullying. And they got bullying online and people are tweeting and there's terrible new venues that bullying are going on. You know, parents can get bullied too. And certainly Christian parents can get bullied. I think parents can get bullied by their children. You never. You always, depending on whatever it is that's being discussed. And sometimes a child will just, this thing go on, you know, and the whole thing, and and a parent can begin to feel like, oh boy, maybe I'm being too strict, and I'm raising in the way of the Lord and all, and, and here I am, I'm getting this, and then the relatives come in and say, you know, you shouldn't do this, and they don't know anything about the Lord or the ways of the Lord, and they don't care, and then they think we're too strict, and all of these kind of things that all come in, and to realize that I, as a parent, a Christian parent, I am under authority in the raising of this child. And it sets you free. Same way in a, in a Christian home where you have an authority structure. God is number one in terms of authority. Second would be the husband. Then would be the wife. And the children would be down below that. So here comes somebody and they begin to try to work the wife to make a decision They're putting pressure on her. They're trying to manipulate her. They're really trying to, all this pressure is being placed on her. She has within that authority structure, people look at that, this is the most confining, restricting, I'm liberated. I am woman, hear me roar, and numbers too big to ignore. I wasn't listening to Helen Reddy's greatest hits this week. 
It's the most freeing thing in the world for a wife to say to somebody that's trying to pressure them and say, you know what? You need to talk to my husband about that. And she just lifts it up, the authority structure. And then the person has to try and manipulate the husband, who is almost always harder. And then if he feels pressure to be manipulated, he ups it, the authority structure too, and then he says, you know what? I don't know about that. You need to talk to God about that and then tell God to talk to me about that and don't talk to me about that anymore. And I will be faithful to try and listen to the voice of God related to that. And that authority structure is a protection. It's a covering. And when we realize that we have been given children as a stewardship to raise in the ways of the Lord, it is a protection for us to be able to be faithful to raise our children in the things of the Lord no matter what kind of opposition we might face. And we can face a lot of different opposition. Again, sometimes even by the kids. It was once or twice in raising our daughters where it might have been more than that, but things get foggy for me as time goes on, where they thought things ought to go a certain way and I thought they ought to go a different way. And um, I was being too strict on something perhaps in, in, in their mind at all, but it was a clear Bible issue. I couldn't say yes to what they wanted me to say yes to and be faithful to the Word of God. And I'd sit them down and I'd say to them, you know, someday, one thing I let them know always is that I am not the way that I am because I am a pastor. I would be this way even if I wasn't a pastor because it's what a Christian is supposed to be and a Christian home is supposed to be like. And by the way, neither Karen and I were perfect as parents, just so you know, not even in our own minds. (laughs) And I would say to them, we have been... You've been given as a stewardship to us to raise in the ways of the Lord. And one day, I'm going to stand before the Lord himself and give an account for my faithfulness to that. That's not an if. That's not a maybe. That one day, as your dad, I will stand before the Lord and give an account for this stewardship. And because of that, this is the decision that I need to make and then explain the wisdom of God's Word related to that decision. And they always seem to understand it. They might not have agreed to it, you know, 100% at the moment, but they were always respectful related to that. And I was always respectful to know that the Lord stood behind me as a parent in that way, and I think it's good for us to realize in in our lives as well. Wonderful to realize that as a parent, my children belong to God first, And then to me, secondarily, it's good for the children, it's good for me, and it's good for God. As you notice in verse 4, the children, like arrows, they have to be well-fashioned. You've got an arrow that shoots straight and true. That doesn't just happen. That's an arrow that's been fashioned. Somebody had to fashion it to be able to shoot that way. In the same way, good children, godly children don't just happen. They have to be fashioned. The Apostle Paul talks about raising children and the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, building them up, warning involved in all of it. But that's how they're fashioned, being raised in the things of the Lord. You bring them up in the ways of the Lord. Children need to be brought up. 
Paul was saying in that passage in Ephesians, and it's going to require training and instruction and, and teaching, and it's also going to require admonition, some verbal instruction, even warning and, and discipline. Every child who grows into adult life has been fashioned. That's a given. Everyone's been fashioned by the time they hit adult life. It's just a matter of who and what has done the fashioning. Has the television done the fashioning? Has the culture done the fashioning? Have the neighbors done the fashioning? Has popular entertainment done the fashioning? Isn't it interesting that Madonna (laughs) won't let her children listen to her music and doesn't live in the United States but lives in Europe? So corrupts an entire culture for that generation with with her morality or unmorality, and then when it produces a country morally that she doesn't agree with, she goes to another continent because she has the options and then puts her children in private schools where they're going to be taught discipline and morality and these kind of things. It's just so hypocritical the way that it is. And so children are raised in this way. It's interesting. You read every once in a while. You read them. I'm a voracious reader in terms of our culture and the trends in our culture because it's very important for me to be very contemporary and very hip. Well, (laughs) as you well know, I hate to state the obvious. (laughs) Look at this shirt. You know why I'm wearing this shirt? Because I am so hip and I am so cool. I'm wearing this shirt, number one, because I saw it in a catalog and it fit me. And number two, I remembered it from when I was a kid. This is what Hawaiian shirts look like. Not this nonsense that we see today. This Tony Bahama trash that we see people investing in. It used to be hot cotton, durable cotton. This could last for years. That's the way they used to make shirts when America was great and it was a place you could raise your children. So anyway... Enough about me. They're going to be fashioned by something. You didn't think I'd come back to it, did you? And we don't want them to fashion themselves. A child left unto themselves bring dishonor to the family. They don't they lack the wisdom to raise themselves. You think about how many children are raising themselves. I hope if you have children and and youth that are junior high aged and high school age, you're going to send them to that edge camp this this summer. Not all of the children will need or the youth will need everything that's going to happen in that week, but so many will. They're going to be taught the things of the Lord and pointed to the Lord, but then taught life skills that like no generation before, being raised without those life skills and how to conduct themselves and how to do simple things in life that can, they don't need to spend the first five years of their adult life making every mistake that nobody built into their life so they wouldn't make. And because children, they they lack what is needed to raise themselves. And again, we certainly don't want the culture to be fashioning them or raising them. God intends that they would be raised by Him and by His Word, where we teach them right and wrong from the Bible, what God says about everything in life. We don't leave it to the culture. We don't leave it to, even to the Sunday school supremely. It's our responsibility. It's our privilege as parents. And then like arrows, again, verse 4, children have to be well-aimed. 
How many children are completely aimless? I was so aimless as a kid. When I, the, the home that I grew up in, I do not remember my parents speaking to me one piece of constructive instruction. My stepdad knew how to intimidate you or beat the living daylights out of you when you violated some standard of his that he never bothered to communicate to us. And the reason why it was important to him. And we grew up into adult life completely aimless. And one of my brother, my brother and one of my sisters, as soon as they went out into the world, they glommed on to the first group of people that would love them and accept them. And unfortunately, it was a terrible, terrible drug culture that they would invest decades in, in their life. And nobody said, this is right, this is wrong, this is the way you should do it, this is why it's important, and we were completely aimless in life. So some of us understand the importance of being well-aimed and what it means not just to have a relatively trouble-free child as a result, but what it does for the child. When a child hits an adult life and they know what the meaning and the purpose of life is, that it has everything to do with loving God with all of our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength, and loving our neighbor as ourself, discovering what his gift and his calling is on my life, and beginning to take steps in that particular direction, and then for God to bless that, and faith being nurtured. How to look an adult in the eye when they speak to you and respond to them in a complete sentence. Some people will lose their first three jobs because nobody bothered to put that much in their life or how to respect authority or to even acknowledge or know what authority is, the importance of these things and what an advantage it gives to children that have been raised in this particular way. I love it when I talk to Christian parents and They speak of their children, and all that matters to them is that their children walk with the Lord. And they speak of their babies, or they speak of their young children, or their growing children, and they can say, honestly, all I care is that they know Him and they walk in His plan for their life. And here you're talking about sometimes parents who are absolutely brilliant in the arts, in science, in education, in engineering, unbelievable gifts in particular areas. And as Christians in those areas, they don't force that upon the child and then say, you will only be a success in life if you follow in my footsteps and you become this. They nurture within that child. You've been created by God as a stewardship given to us. We raised you the best way that we knew how in the things of the Lord. We'll always stand by you and be a help to you. But what has God called you to excel in and to be great in for His glory? And that's their concern. And it's a beautiful thing to see that in a parent and then give the child 
the room to discover and to spend their life exploring that, learning that from God and, and the same way that we were able to do uh, that. And all of it comes out of a well-aimed life. And that's the only well-aimed life is the one that is aimed toward the things of the Lord, person that's been raised in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And I want to say to any of us in this room tonight as Christian parents who you did all of this and more in raising your children or your child and your child is wayward tonight. They're not a joy to you. They are not a security to you. They are not a protection to you. They are the biggest heartbreak in your life. You just continue your prayers for them because the story isn't over yet. I, would, I could ask for a show of hands, but I won't do it for how many people sit in this room tonight or in any church on any given Sunday or Wednesday or Monday or Tuesday or whatever night by me, and how many people are in a congregation on fire for God and appreciate God in a way that they perhaps might not have otherwise appreciated except they learned some things the hard way in their life. But here they were, a heartbreak to their parents. But the day came because of praying parents, praying grandparents, praying friends and relatives. They ultimately turned around and gave their life to the Lord. And when they do so often, they are thoroughly saved. And so you keep praying. And I think it's also important to remember that though in your current place there appears to be no reward at all for your faithfulness, the raising of your children in this life, that you remember that there is a reward that is waiting for you in heaven. You have been a good and faithful servant unto the Lord. Now he must make much of that and he will be faithful to do so. We'll stop there tonight and we'll ask the worship team to come forward and lead us in maybe one or two songs to close this evening and give us some time to just worship the Lord once again and maybe meditate on some of these things that